Hello? <laughs> Sorry. So the readings from Haggai chapter 1, that's on page 948 in the Church Bibles. So Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planned much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home... I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the house of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had seen him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of the whole, oh, sorry, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. Thanks, Sharon. What was the last job you started but didn't finish? What was the last job you started but didn't finish? Uh, maybe it was a DIY project uh, that began well, you made a big mess, but then for whatever reason, tools ran out or you, you gave up. No, um, 
it, it just didn't finish. And there's a big mess still. There's work that's still to be done. Uh, maybe you've left at home a whole a bunch of jobs that need doing. The washing up, the, the big sort out that you always talk about, uh, the hoovering, something like that. You start with great enthusiasm for this big job that needs doing, and then it just kind of slows down. It's a bit tedious, and you kind of stop before it's finished. Uh, maybe you've got homework uh, still left to do, or maybe there's work to be done uh, for a meeting this week. Uh, you had high hopes as you entered the weekend. I'm going to get it done by Saturday lunchtime. But then other things got in the way. Priorities kicked in. It got knocked to the bottom of the pile. Um, I, too, if you're interested, have a few unfinished jobs. Um, ask my wife for the whole list. But um, the most pressing one for me is an essay, which is due in about 11 hours. So we're going to keep it a bit brief tonight, if that's okay. Um, we can all relate to this, right? We can all relate to this. A job that starts with great enthusiasm, and then it just whimpers out a little bit. It's far easier to start a project than it is to see it through. And it's not always a question of desire. I really want my essay done. I really do. Uh, maybe you really want that house, that project finished, the washing up just gone as you walk in. That'd be a miracle, wouldn't it? You walk home and it's all done. But we can quickly become distracted when things get hard in the job that we're called to do, or when something else crops up that just needs our little bit of attention, and then we're just sidetracked from what we're called to do. Now, I'll start there because this is similar in the Christian life. Our followers of Jesus have been given a huge job to do. Followers of Jesus are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the... And of the... Well done. And teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. There's no bigger or higher calling in life than that work. It's why our catchphrase at church is to make Jesus known in Enfield Town as we grow to know him better. We want to go and we want to grow. And then the gathering as well. That facilitates those things. That's why we've shaped our staff team to have an outreach pastor, soon to be Dougal, and a discipleship pastor, Jonathan. We know it's a priority. And I guess if you're a follower of Jesus, you, didn't, you wouldn't say it wasn't. You'd be like, no, it absolutely is a priority. It should be the priority of what we are about. That's the task we've been called to do. That's the task we've been called to give our lives to, our resources to. And we want to do that, right? We want to see this happen. And yet how easy is it for us to be distracted from that task? If we watched a film of your life, my life over this past month, would making disciples of Jesus and living for him be shown as our greatest desire and biggest goal? I wonder if you can remember back, some of you would be longer than others, but I wonder if you can remember back to the early days of faith if you're a follower of Jesus. So often, someone who starts following Jesus, we describe them as being on fire for him. There's a hunger for his word. There's a zeal in evangelism. They're so aware of this call to make disciples, to build the church, as it were. I remember a friend of mine at uh, the Christian Union at university, they got saved, and within about three weeks, I think most of the campus had heard about the CU Nights and about the church events. They were all kind of invited in, and it was so encouraging and humbling and transforming all at the same time. So often we go, no, we, we need hours of equipping to be able to do this. But so often new believers just run with their newfound love for Jesus and go, look, I don't know everything, but come meet Jesus who saved me. Do you remember those days? I think we experience a similar thing, I think, when we, we get like a fresh answer to prayer. 
when God graciously reveals a prayer that he's answered for us. And in those moments, we're, we're, we're reawakened to his majesty, to his power, and to the mission, and we're on fire for him again. So as we think about making disciples and going about this great task entrusted to us, as we do that, as we begin to reflect on this, we can so easily become distracted or discouraged, and our enthusiasm can quickly just kind of fizzle out. And maybe that's you this evening as you've come along to church. We can quickly lose the urgency and the privilege and the joy of being part of God's mission and what he's doing in the world. Now, as we look at the first part of Haggai, or Haggai, I don't know how people want to pronounce it. I'm going for Haggai. Um, This is the challenge that is before us. Now, if you're wondering how we can go from temple building to disciple making, we're going to see that. It's worth staying awake for, just for that. Um, But what we're going to hear is, in one sense, an uncomfortable message from the Lord. And yet, before you run for the doors, know that this challenge to keep on mission comes with great assurances too. So tonight, this is where we're going to go. We're going to consider the the persistent word of the Lord who confronts, who corrects, and who comforts his people in the great task he's called them to. I'll say it again. We're going to consider the word of the Lord uh, which confronts, corrects, and comforts his people in the great task he's called them to. That's our three stops this evening, those three C's. Hopefully you can remember them as you leave. So let's dive in to our passage. I'm going to think about this first one, confronts. God confronts his people. Now, um, we've kind of returned to this book because if you remember last year, if you were around, we, we did one Sunday or one sermon on each of the minor prophets. And we wanted to return to one of the books and we've come and we've landed on Haggai. But here's the scene. Let me set the scene for you. As a consequence to um, Israel's unfaithfulness, God's people had been away in exile in Babylon, and they were there for 70 years. They were away from their home, and more significantly, they were away from the temple where God had previously dwelt amongst them. We read in the book of Ezra that God moved the heart of King Cyrus, who was the most powerful man in the world at that time. God moved his heart so that God's people would be allowed to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. Not everyone left Babylon, but those that came back began the work of rebuilding. We read about it. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what those books are about. And things start off pretty well. As they get building, they build the altar, and they start to commit offerings to the Lord. And there's rejoicing. They then build the foundations to the temple. And if you know the book of Ezra well, it's that moment which is that kind of weird mix of wailing and rejoicing. There's this wailing because some of the older generation remember the former glory of the temple and then see kind of the small beginnings and think, wow, how sinful are we? And yet as there's also this anticipation of what the temple is about to become as they start building this work. There's excitement But then opposition to the work frustrated and wearied and scared God's people. And eventually the work just slowed down until it came to a standstill. And it's in a standstill state for about 16 years, which is a long time. There's some of us in this room who haven't made it 16 years in life yet. It's a long time. Then in August 520 BC, roughly... Um, The word of the Lord arrives through Haggai and Zechariah 
during the reign of King Darius, and it's this first word of the Lord, the word that confronts the people. Have a look down with me at those first few verses. Verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses? while this house remains a ruin. Do you see the point that God makes as he confronts his people? He confronts them with their priorities. They'd arrived back to Jerusalem with such enthusiasm to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the dwelling place for the Lord Almighty, but after setbacks and disappointments and discouragements, well, they're they're totally distracted, aren't they? Their greatest concern now wasn't the Lord's house and building that. It was to build their own houses. And did you hear their reasoning? Look at verse 2 again. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. You see, just note, they do clearly care about this work. They desire to do, they, they desire to do this building project. But for them, it's just not quite the right time. This is just a little bit inconvenient at this point. Lord, we do really want to build your temple. We'll get to it, but just not yet. Come back later. As I read that, my initial response was just to point the finger. I'd be like, come on, guys. God's restored you back to the land, back to the place. And here's the temple, the meeting place between God and man. And you you can't be bothered to build it because you're building your own house. Come on. But it's so easy, isn't it, to point the finger. Yeah, I'm so aware of the same excuses that I use in my life when it comes to the Lord's building project of the church. This week I've been particularly challenged because I've literally been busy doing lots of painting and DIY work. And it's not wrong to do other work. Um, It's okay to enjoy the things that God has given us. But it's very easy to start prioritizing those things over the work that God has called us to do. Like Israel, we're so often consumed more by our own houses than a zeal for God's house. See, think about it. Um, as I was reflecting on this, just, just think about this, the area of serving. There are, there are many teams in church life that are struggling at the moment, or potentially might do once um, we've sent a few people to Turkish Street and to High Barnet. Yet it's, it's really easy to use time as an excuse not to be involved. We say, when I've finished my studies, I'll have more time. Then I'll, then I'll serve. At that point, I will. Now it just doesn't make sense. Uh, if you've got young kids like me, it's easy to use the kids. Oh, you know, When the kids are older, I'll be more available. I'll have more flexibility. Then I'll do it. Um, when this cold is gone, when this illness is passed, then I'll be, able to be, I'll be in a better place to make a better decision. Then I'll get round to it. Do you see the desire is there? I want to do it. But the delay to do something often just results in nothing happening, no action. It's the same with with our giving. We say, you know, when I'm older, when that bill is paid, when I get to my next promotion, then I'll sort my giving out. But the reality is we can make a plan, but don't follow through with it. Now, please hear me right. Um, There might be a genuine and good reason to delay 
It's not always a wrong thing. But just knowing my own heart, we can often leave work for the Lord as simply good intentions. Yeah, I'll get around to it. I know, I do want to be a part of it, but just not yet. We can delay and then forget. Now for Israel, the Lord had been incredibly patient Before he sent his word to confront his people, he had sent them signs and warnings through their frustrated endeavors. Over 16 years, as they had busied themselves in their work and for their comfort, he had frustrated their plans. Look at verse 5 and 6. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Their busyness was fruitless. Their labors were in vain. Their work was totally dissatisfying, like money seeping through holes in the purse. In verse 9 and 10 and 11, he points to the covenant curses he'd brought onto the land that were in line with what he'd said in Deuteronomy 28, when he he kind of declared, if you are unfaithful, these are the things that are going to happen. See, the people should have noticed that as they looked at their frustrated work and recognized what was this about. That's why the Lord says, give careful thoughts to your ways, twice in our passage, five times in the book of Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. And just as that challenge was true then, actually, that's the same message for us this evening. Give careful thought to your ways. Where is the Lord confronting you this evening? Which area of service or life or giving in kind of the church work? See, the Lord graciously confronts his people. But he doesn't stop in the confronting. The Lord doesn't just point out our flaws and say, see you later. Our God is so gracious. And so he graciously seeks to correct his people, to get them back on track with what they've been called to do. And this is the verse that's right in the middle, central to our chapter, verse 8. Have a look at what the Lord says to his people. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. By prioritising their own houses, the people had really been chasing for their own glory. But the Lord steps in and says, no, build my house for my pleasure and for my honour. Now, if someone else said that, that'd be a really arrogant thing to say, wouldn't it? If you thought about that, go and build my house. Be like, that's, that's a bit of a rude thing to say. But for God, it's not. Because for God, it is his due. We were made to reflect God's glory. We are his image bearers. To be truly human is to live for God's glory. And when we don't, we not only rob God of what is rightfully due to him, but we also remain unsatisfied. It's the God-shaped hole in our hearts. Because we're not living how we're meant to. And this plays out in a number of ways just been thinking through how it plays out in this mission to make Jesus known. Just consider your evangelism. An opportunity comes up to speak of Jesus, but in those moments when we avoid it because we fear what others think, in that moment we reveal that we're far more concerned about our own reputation than God's glory. And we in that moment not only feel a bit rubbish, 
But we've missed an opportunity for someone else to hear and to be saved, to be part of God's grand plan of salvation. Consider discipleship. When a Christian friend sins, rebuking and correcting them with the word of God would do, do them good, wouldn't it? Yeah, we often flee the thought. We say, well, if I rebuke them, then they might think less of me. Or it will make me feel too much of a hypocrite because I know I'm a sinner as well. But again, when we do that, we show that we're more concerned for our glory than God's. And so we need his word to correct us so we might be liberated from the fear of others and from the arrogance of our hearts. That we might be about his work for his glory. One really practical way to help correct our thinking is to pray the prayer our Saviour taught us to pray. I found that really helpful in the last couple of weeks as I've kind of, I don't know, once has misplaced it for a little while in life. And then just to return and go, these are glorious words because it shapes our whole being. Jesus prayed, didn't he? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When was the last time you used that prayer with someone else? Or to shape your own prayers, not just in some kind of chant, like a religious chant, but to use it to order what we think about, what we care most about. Lord, I bow to your will. I long for your kingdom to come, not mine. See, God uses our prayers to shape and mold our thinking and our wills. You see, in one sense, the biggest irony of all that we see in this chapter is that as the people, like we're tempted to do, chase after the things of this world for their own comfort and resources, then they find dissatisfaction. But God promises to supply all that we need as we live for him. That was true of the blessings outlined in the Old Covenant. God said, you you live my way, You, you remain faithful to me, and you'll receive the blessings of the covenant. It rings true from the lips of Jesus. Consider the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All the things that our world chases after will be given to you as well, as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. Will we submit ourselves to the word of the Lord and let it shape and correct our thinking and behavior? So the word of the Lord confronts and it corrects. And just at this point, I just want to pause because you might still be sitting there thinking, well, okay, we're talking lots about temple. We're kind of going from temple to building um, the church and making disciples. Just in case we haven't made that link, let me just pause and help you to see how we get there. Um, The short answer, and you can be the judge if it's short or not, but the short answer is that we no longer need to build the physical temple like they did in Haggai's day, this meeting place between God and man, the place for sacrifice of sins, because we believe Jesus is that place. He is the temple. He was the one that the temple was always pointing to. If you're here this morning, that was one of the accusations that were, were made against Jesus, In John chapter 2, Jesus said of himself, destroy this temple, destroy my body, and I'll raise it again in three days. He spoke of his death and resurrection where he would take upon himself the sins of his people so that all who look to him may be made clean to meet with God for all eternity. Jesus is the temple. It's not just a physical place where we can meet God now. We come to God our Father through Jesus. 
And as he sends his people out to all nations with this good news, we are building his worldwide people. And this is language that the New Testament writers often pick up on. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, You are members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, we're still builders, but we're not building some physical temple. We're building Jesus' kingdom, his church. That's the work that we're to be about. That's the work we're to give careful thought about this week as as we engage in the biggest and highest calling in life to make Jesus known, to see God take all the glory. That's why temple building leads us to making disciples for Jesus. So as we come back to this, the word of the Lord confronts, it corrects, and as it does, those two things, we will see the fruit. So back in Haggai's day, chapter 1, did you notice that as the Lord has spoken, he's confronted his people and he's corrected his people, what happens? Well, look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. The people are gripped with fear. They're united with this fear of the Lord, not a fear of condemnation, but a fear, this kind of reverent fear of putting God in his right place. Getting their priorities right, they began to lift his name and his concerns above their own. And we know that it was effective because what do they then do? Well, we're told by the um, the end of uh, verse 14 that they began to work on the house of the Lord. The work continues again. And spoiler alert, four years' time, it's done. They're waiting 16 years of nothing, but then four years it's built As we come and sit under God's word and allow it to confront and to correct us, it will stir us to action. It will stir us to complete the great mission for his glory. So we've had confronts, corrects. What was the final C, can you remember? Comforts, thank you. The word of God also comforts his people in this task. In this task. Have a look down at verse 13 and 14. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave his mess- this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. There were three weeks, just over three weeks from those first messages to them actually starting that work. And as the people get about rebuilding the temple, the Lord promises to be with them. Imagine how reassuring that would have been. They've just been confronted by their sin, their lack of building the Lord's house over their own. But the Lord says, I'm with you in this work. I'm with you. And friends, that is the same, isn't it, with our mission. 
Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus doesn't just send his church out to go and build um, his people. He promises to be with us in that task. We find it hard, don't we? But Jesus is there. He's not disinterested. He's actively at work through us and for his glory. And one day, brothers and sisters, it will be finished. One day there will be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, before the Lamb, united in one voice, shouting, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That's the trajectory of all human history. That's why that work is so, um, such a privilege to be a part of. That's our calling. The word of the Lord confronts his people. It reveals the ways that we've put our building projects above his. The word of the Lord corrects his people. It leads us back to the incredible work God's called us to do. And the word of the Lord comforts his people in that task because he promises to be with us in the work for his glory. So just so we draw to an end, how are you, how are we getting on with the great job that Jesus has called us to do, to go and make disciples? Distracted? Flat? Focused? I wonder what word you would use. But again, twice in chapter 1, the Lord calls his people to give careful thought to their ways. And so this week, will you give careful thought to your ways about how you're giving your life and your resources and your time to that great mission? And why don't you take time now to start doing that? You'll need more time, but why don't you start doing that now, um, just before the band comes up to lead us in a song? And in those moments, as you do that, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian... The word of the Lord says, stop building your own house. Stop living for yourself, because it's a life that won't satisfy. Instead, join the great building project. Start building Jesus' house, a house that will last forever. Take a moment, and then we'll sing in a moment.